Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. I was in very early pregnancy and I thought, well, this is going to end in miscarriage again and I'll be too hurt to write about it. And then as the pregnancy progressed, I was like, shit, now this is going to end perhaps with a baby and then I feel like such a fraud because the point of the blog, and I really wanted the point to be, was that it's okay not to have a happy ending because there's so many goddamn happy endings and when you're infertile, that is the last thing you want to read or hear. And so then when... I thought, oh, my God, I've already put this out there. And then it's going to be like, oh, wait, look, I got my baby. And so I didn't want to finish it. I wasn't going to. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we have beauty editor extraordinaire Lee Campbell. If we are talking expert voices in the Australian beauty and lifestyle space, Lee is the ultimate go-to. If you're like us, you probably grew up reading her columns and insights in Cosmo or later on in the Huffington Post. We sat down with Lee to talk about her career in magazines, her battle with mental illness and the guilt and shame that comes with falling pregnant after a battle with infertility. Here's Lee. Lee Campbell, welcome to Shameless. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. You guys are killing it. Go Aww. Shameless. Thank you. And we've also got little baby Xander in the background here. We do. So if you hear some squawking, I'm sorry. <laughs> I told him he had to go to sleep, but he's too excited. Oh, there was a little squawk, but he's very cute. He's pretty cute. He's just turned seven weeks. He's kind of like waking up now, as they say, and he's smiling and doing all of the things. But he just spewed on me. Oh, you can't see you it. You can't even see it. That was you've my covered first well. mum spew on my... Well, I guess I don't wear normal clothes, but I was wearing normal clothes, you know, I'm killing it (laughs) and then he spewed all down my front and I was like oh well what are you gonna do what do you use to get that out baby wipes oh Oh, man the amount of wipes like I can't save the planet right now having a baby is so wasteful interesting the nappies the wipes all of the things and you try and buy the eco brands but they're so expensive well muslin cloths can only do so much correct no and you need like the wet to like rub it out because it just smells like sour milk sounds glamorous yeah (laughs) so I'm really loving it guys (laughs) new mum life is very glamorous we start every episode in the same way which will be really Really interesting for you because you are six weeks into mat leave. Mm. What are you reading, watching, or listening to at the moment, if at all? Oh my god, this is so embarrassing. And when I was smart and didn't have baby brain, I promise I listened and read and did stuff. So <laughs> we've just moved and we don't have Wi Fi. So I'm watching Channel Nine. 
um, the Today Show. I'm watching Judge Judy. I'm watching Ellen. That's the best thing. But to be honest with you, I'm not watching anything. You're stuck in 2005. Yes, I am. I'm stuck in 2005. I do have Game of Thrones on a thingy. Like a <laughs> like DVD? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not that bad. Um, but I'm halfway through season three of Game of Thrones because I'm that far behind as well. And I don't get it, guys. Right. Oh, you're talking to the right people because we never got oh, into it. Oh, thank God. I no. can't find my people because I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. I can't watch anything that you need. Like if I have to give my undivided attention yeah. to something, not for me. I need to have my phone out and I need to be doing other stuff. Yeah. Or it's like a movie that's an hour. You can concentrate on that. But yeah. this is, I've got five seasons ahead of me. Anyway, so don't watch what I'm watching. Reading <laughs> is like Googling my baby's poo colour, my baby did this, is it normal for babies to lose their hair? My, you know, Is it normal for babies to lose their yes, hair? Yes, they lose their hair they're, that they're born with. So he's got like a Hitler like <sighs> short back and sides. It's really... It's because they roll around on their head and it comes out? Correct. See, midwives are. <laughs> yeah, there you no go. Idea what I'm so don't about. read what I'm reading. And what we're listening to, he loves Sam Smith. Loves. Oh. So lots of Sam Smith when we do tummy time. How can you tell that the baby likes Sam Smith? They just, well, yeah, they don't the say, hey, mum, can you just pop on that playlist? Great track. <laughs> I think they like anything kind of lyrical and sing-songy. So because he's got such a beautiful voice, I don't know, he just Do the little legs happy. start going? Yeah, and oh. in his little tummy time, he's wiggling his bum and trying to move his head. And maybe oh I just God. like it. <laughs> he doesn't say no. So, yeah, sorry, guys. I'm normally reading more intelligent things. but The second question we always ask as well is, what was your childhood like? Oh, what a lovely question. Well, for me anyway. Um, I had the best childhood. I was. I have a brother and sister that are 10 and 8 years older. I was a pleasant surprise. Um, my mum likes to call it. Um, and so I – and my parents are fantastic people. They're not very parenty. They're very liberal. So I just kind of had like four besties. I didn't walk till I was 16 months. I know because I just grunted and pointed and people brought me things. Um, so I'm very much – the youngest child, um, particularly when I go home, the brat comes out. Um, but I had a beautiful childhood. We lived out on acreage and we rode motorbikes and go-karts and very kind of not polished beauty And liberal to the point where they let you get a tattoo when you're a teenager. Yes, they did. We were in Tahiti and I was 15 and I desperately wanted a tattoo. Um, but that's a strange place to get a tattoo. Can you hear my child? <laughs> um, and so the guy came to our room and he spoke no English and I wanted a shooting star, but he didn't know what that was. So all he knew was hibiscus because that was their national flower, I think. And so he gave me this hibiscus that looks like a guitar. It's horrific. Where is it? It's on my hip. It's just so bad. But I'm not... there's liberal parenting and then there's like liberal parenting right? to well, let then you do that. We jumped straight on the plane on the way home and then I started vomiting and my mum was like, oh my God, we didn't check the needle. Oh my God, what has she contracted? And I think I just said motion sickness. But um, yeah, they're not, they're not very parenty. But that's why I think I love them so much. But it's funny because now parenting. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, with my husband who's Greek and has quite traditional Greek parents. He was very strictly parented. And so it's interesting now because we compare notes about how we want to be. And I'm like, oh, no. So he's going to have to be bad cop because I want to be a good cop. Do you think you'll find a middle ground? Like you won't be as liberal as your parents yeah. were? I mean, I think you have to because you have to be a united front for your child anyway. Otherwise, it's going to cause cracks in your marriage. And I think you don't want to resent each other for going behind each other's backs. And yeah, I probably should have done homework and like not dropped out of high school and stuff like that. So hopefully Zandy won't drop out of high school like I did. So yeah, I'll have to kind of take a few notes out of Richard's book. I am really interested when you talk about dropping out of high school before mm. you finished did, did something in you change as you grew up? Because to drop out of to high school... To stop being a dead shit? No, well, to stop. <laughs> because you're so driven and you're success, yeah. you're really successful now. What 
Is there like a link there? Or? I don't. Look, I, the school I went to is an excellent school and most of my friends excelled extremely well. I just didn't. I wasn't academic and it was quite an academic school. It wasn't creative and it wasn't sporty. And I'm probably creative, I would say. I was just bored. I just hadn't found my thing, I guess. And I didn't really want to work in... I'd never thought of media or magazines or anything like that. So I don't know what changed. I guess I found my groove, something that I cared about. Because it is so interesting because writing, and you are such a good writer, Mm. is so linked to so much of what Mm. you do at high school. Yeah, so I mean, when I left school, I then got into the White House Institute, which is a design school, and did interiors. So I think finding my groove, not that that's related to media at all, to be honest, but I just didn't school just didn't serve me I mean I liked recess and lunch they were my favorite (laughs) and detention was always fun Um, but it just wasn't for me do you think that there's still kind of a snobbery about like not going to uni and not finishing school did you feel that when you started entering the workforce 100% I mean not when I entered the workforce I was really lucky getting into magazines I was just given a job because I was there which is poor people hate hearing that like poor girls that slog it out you know doing internships for two weeks uh, two years excuse me and I was there for two hours but more so when people ask me you know what was your path and what should I study what did you study at uni I'm like oh, I didn't go to uni didn't actually finish high school and then I think a lot of people are like oh wow and want to know well why have you got your job and I always think that natural talent will always far exceed any sort of education granted if you're a surgeon please go to uni. (laughs) (laughs) Some things need it. Scientists, please stay there. Some things need it. But yeah, exactly. I think in creative industries, if you've got that natural talent, then you can probably hone that without the official qualifications. I completely agree with that. I feel like I did three years at university and while I can look back and piece together different things that I picked up from that time, I actually think way too many millennials are in universities doing courses that are probably unnecessary. Yeah. Like I did three years at Melbourne Uni and I reckon I could piece together all the information that was actually necessary for a job in the media in about two weeks of classes. Seriously, and I've done some teaching now at private colleges and the curriculum, I'm like, oh no, guys, it doesn't work like this. And, you know, I kind of throw out the curriculum. Please excuse my child. I'm going to let him <laughs> No, let him go. Um, you know, it sounds great in theory, but it's literal theory, you know, and then you get into practice and it's so different. So those classes that I've taught I'm like no I'm throwing this out and I just tell them how it is so it's not until you get into the industry that experience you know you can gather so much more in experience I think. Mm. So you said you were offered a job or landed a job within a couple of hours in magazines can you take us to that time and what it was about magazines that led you kind of to that point? I I didn't really like magazines (laughs) (laughs) so I'd been traveling and I had a huge debt and I got home I was 21 and I was supposed to find an interior job but my friend worked at Cleo and Cleo used to pay 50 bucks cash in hand for work experience. And I was like, great, I need $50 badly. So I'd planned to do a, work, a week of work experience where I looked for a job and I was just there for a few hours and they were launching a magazine called Shop to You Drop. And Paula Joy said, hey, and she was the editor of Cleo and, and Shop at the time. <gasps> Can you hear my child farting? I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, said, hey, you look like you're hardworking. Do you want a job? Do you want to be the... Um, assistant to the editor and I was like okay I'll just call my mum and I called my mum and I was like mum I got offered a job and she's like great take it like we're not paying your bills anymore and so that was my plan was to just do that for a bit and then get an interior job and then here we are I ended up falling in love with magazines and you worked there I feel like in what was the golden era of magazines I was really lucky I just oh my god like I it's bad to talk about it because people like what that was a job you know the trips we got to go on and you, I mean, you had a really important job, but the workload and the speed, I thought I was busy then. And then now you fast forward to digital media 
and you're like, oh, wow, that was so cushy. What were the jo- what were the highlights? Like, what was the glamour of the job? Well, I think because as a beauty editor, a lot of the magazine's money is made through beauty advertising. So it's important for the beauty director of the magazine to go with the advertisers and do the schmoozy things. So I would always go to New York Fashion Week to cover that with brands like Tresemme. You'd interview, you know, Kim Kardashian or Usher or uh, Hilary Duff, like whoever it was that had a fragrance or whatever it was at that time. And that was just your day-to-day. And other days you were going to lunch because it was really important to sit next to the head of L'Oreal or head of Rimmel or whoever it was. And so it was really, really fun, but it was also important to know that that was your job. Mm. You know, almost like a professional flirter in a way. You've got to go and talk the talk and, you know, sing the praises of the title that you work for and, you know, make that brand go, hey, yeah, I really want to advertise with Cosmo. That girl, you know, really sold it to me over that lunch. And then oftentimes it would. And if you're a good beauty editor, you would bring in money. That was part of your, you know, part of your job. And it sounds ridiculous, but some of those moments can lead to really big milestones in your career. And like the people that you meet in those really schmoozy, ridiculous lunches can be really important, right? Right. Absolutely. And look, this was a time before Instagram. So it was a bit easier for beauty editors to go under the radar. (laughs) And now everything is on Instagram. It does look just shiny and superficial and short parts of it is, but it's actually really important. You know, people thought that magazines made money off the $6 or whatever you pay for a mag, but that doesn't cover anything. It's all about the advertising and that's mostly beauty. And so that was kind of the beauty editor's job as well as writing the beauty pages. Mm -hmm. It was the golden era. Do you remember a time when you felt the mood shift away from magazines? Because you jumped out quite early compared to a lot of people who were in that game. Yeah. And you you know what? I didn't want to because I had a cushy job. It was great. It was easy. Um, But I saw the tides turning because... I didn't read magazines. None of my friends read or bought magazines. You read them at the hairdresser or maybe on a flight. And then I would buy an international Vogue. I wouldn't buy anything Australian. And I thought, hang on, if I'm not reading them and my friends aren't reading them, this is bad news, Mm -hmm. you know. And some friends had jumped ship, so to say, to digital. And that was the safe space. That was like, oh, wow, the future. Um, And so I thought, okay, I've got to do something. I started a blog, which was called The Daily Coverage, because I basically wanted to teach myself how to use a CMS. Um, And then from there, they were launching HuffPost in Australia and I was lucky enough that the CEO had heard about me and he contacted me and said, do you want to come for a chat? And I was like, yes, (laughs) digital, save me. And then it wasn't until my first day, they were like, right. And I was like, I only know how to use Word. And they were like, what? And I was like, I've never had a digital job before. I mean, I knew how to use WordPress. WordPress. Um, but they're like, oh, we forgot to ask you if you know how to work in digital. I was like, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> you guys are the suckers. But I'm a quick learner. Um, so, yeah, I did get out. I think I got out at a good time. But it was a hard move because that was where all my friends were. I was at Bauer Media for 12 years. It's hmm. a long so, time. It it's was. so strange. Do you think that there was a time where magazines absolutely could be saved? They just weren't quick enough on it? Like in terms of not the print but the, the move the to digital? Heads. 100%. You know, I think... I don't want to speak badly of Bauer and I loved my time there, but we were kind of banging our heads against the wall saying, guys, the website, the website. And at a time then, the website was updated once a month when the magazine came out and it was just they would update the cover photo and then put a few kind of beauty buys and fashion buys. What year was this? God, don't ask me that. It was, so sorry. It, was, <laughs> it was too late. Put it yeah, that way. Okay. It was a couple of years too late. And then I think it kind of twigged, but you can't really catch up with that because people only have the capacity to read so much. A capacity for screen time and I think that's why podcasts are so you know prevalent now because we don't have time to look at the screens mm. so people were already reading what they were reading and we just couldn't catch up although we tried 
what was it like then to be told that HuffPo was going to close in Australia? Was that because obviously you had gone to digital media and thought this is my life raft mm. and this is the future of the industry to then mm-hmm. be told actually it's not as stable as it seems and lots of digital media publications struggle. Yep. How did that feel? Were you anxious about the yeah. future? That's the thing because it was a safe space. I was like, I'm going to digital where all the new media is and it's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't. So HuffPost Australia was around for two and a half years. And you know what? It's such a shame because editorial we did some really, really great stuff, but commercially we just couldn't get it together. Um, and then HuffPost globally made a decision to cl- to close some editions, Australia being one of them, India also, I think, a couple of others. Yeah, it was devastating because I was really happy there. I loved my team. I believed in what we were doing. I didn't feel like I was done. But having said that, if you don't get made redundant once in media, you're not doing it right. Mm. Um and it was just handled poorly by the, the HuffPost team in the US. I'll say that. And that's hard as a boss because you're trying to, you know, make your stuff feel okay and you kind of know from the top that bad things are going on but you're like, it's okay, and thinking, okay, well, we're probably all going to lose our job. So that was hard because I was friends with my team. Um, but everyone landed on their feet. Everyone's at better places. Mm. Um, so it's okay now. But, yeah, it was hard. It happened right before Christmas, you know, and that's stressful. You don't, you don't, you're not employed. You don't have a job. Is that a lot of pressure, though, because you are the boss and you did have a team underneath you? Was that a lot of pressure to take on that you felt like you probably couldn't talk about it when you knew what was happening? Yeah. And you had to keep a really good poker face, yeah. I guess. That and would I be a have, lot I'm of not to very take good on. with that. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard and because it, it, it dragged out for several weeks. We kind of knew and then it was leaked in the media, of course, um, mm. that it was going to happen and, you know, it was inevitable. It's kind of like waiting to die, like mm. this weird rumor about you it was really hard but my team were absolute legends and completely understood and I think you know intelligent people can sense a mood in a room totally so it wasn't a huge surprise it was just a massive disappointment because we just loved what we were doing one thing I noticed when I was going back and reading through some of your HuffPost stuff in the last few days uh, (laughs) I know you'd be surprised um was obviously it must be strange for you it must have been strange at the time going from beauty editing when you're writing a lot about beauty to occasionally writing personal things about yourself and one of the stories that I read back this morning that I was talking to Michelle about was one that you titled the sadness on my shoulder when you wrote about your depression what was those decisions like? like like particularly deciding to write about your depression that is clearly something incredibly personal and putting your name and face to that. Mm. Was it hard? It was really hard and I didn't didn't think I was going to do that and the way the HuffPost model had editorial and then they had the blogging platform which if you followed HuffPost for a long time there was a lot of you know drama around it because a lot of people would contribute for free and so they'd say HuffPost makes I was one of those people yeah. <laughs> there you go right but we had like Jennifer Aniston Michelle Obama they would write for HuffPost for free it was a place for people to get their voice out there if they didn't have a voice normally if they were an actor or a sports person whatever anyway the blogging section of our team would always say write me something and I'm like oh no no I write about lipstick that's it (laughs) I'm not writing anything from me but it was really encouraged for the staff to do that and I did and I'm so glad I did because I think I probably wouldn't be where I am now if I didn't cut my teeth doing that at HuffPost but it was really terrifying because you hit publish and a You've got to keep in mind, I've come to digital where I can see what people like. Whereas in print, the magazine goes out the door and you go, buy magazine, I hope you liked it. Mm. Also, it's three, you worked on it three months ago. Mm. So you don't get any feedback. But going into digital, immediately you get feedback if people like what you're publishing, even if that's just a beauty article. And then it's, do they like what I'm publishing? And I'm saying about myself and it's the deepest, darkest parts of me. And so, yeah, it was really terrifying. But I think the feedback on pieces like that makes you want to do it and be vulnerable because it helps so many people and it also helps you. I find it incredibly cathartic to do 
stuff like that. But yeah, it was bloody terrifying at the time. And you'll see if you read that post, I didn't use the word depression because I wasn't ready. Yeah. It, you know, I alluded and you can tell, but I didn't use any of those words because I was like, eek. I am interested. You have struggled with depression since you were a child. Is that right? Yes, yeah. I have. I used to go to the worry doctor. That's what mum called it. I used to go to the worry doctor and I worried so much about going to the worry doctor because he made me rate my worry out of 10. I was like, what number will I choose? Very meta. I find those things right? so hard because it's like, how do you know if your scale is the same as mine? Like same. my six could be your three. Yes. Like I just find it a futile way to measure pain. Right. And like last week <laughs> I was an eight, but now I feel different, but I don't feel better. So what do I choose? And I'm like, hello, I'm eight years old. Yeah, of course. Um, so I've just always been a worrier I, and I don't know why. I think I was just born that way. I am interested because I'm the same. I have always been a worrier as well and I think anxiety is something I've always had as I look back throughout my life. Do you struggle to see the line between your mental illness and your personality? Because personally, I think mine are almost inextricably linked. It's so funny you say that because I was having a, that literal conversation on the weekend about, you know, Anyway, I won't go into it, but we were saying that's just who he is. But mm. to us as outsiders, we were like, oh, but that part of him isn't good, so he should change. He should go get help. Mm. But for this person that we're talking about, but, we, you know, we said that is who he is. And then it made me think about me because I'm, you know, quite anxious. I'm quite, you know, I'm a worrier and therefore I'm extremely organised because if I can organise the worry away, I can't worry about it. But Rich is, my husband, is very easygoing and c- the complete opposite. And it drives him crazy sometimes because I'll be like, get ready. And he's like, we don't have to be there for three hours. And I'm like, <laughs> but the traffic could do this and, the, and we need to be, you know, 10 years early. But oftentimes I'll say to him, that is just who I am. Mm. You know, it's how I am and I like who I am despite that or because of that maybe. So I think as you come to accept your little quirks like that and, you know, having depression or anxiety or whatever it may be, if you're well within yourself but there's still elements of it, I don't think you can... Wish them away? Yeah, yeah. I think it's who you are to a degree. You know, we can't all just be happy, shiny people and you can't go to therapy or take medicine and then just all be cookie-cutter people. You Do know? you still go to a therapist now? I'm looking for a new one. Mm-hmm. I did when I was pregnant with Sandy because I had such anxiety around stillbirth or miscarriage or anything pregnancy-related. Mm. And now, to be honest, my father's quite unwell. Um, and that's my biggest fear. So when I went to therapy, when I was eight years old, it was about my dad. And then as an adult, I've been hypnotized about my dad dying. And now my dad is dying, mm. to be honest with you. So I'm looking for a grief counselor, but it's such an intimate um, relationship. It's really hard. It's really I hard think. to find a therapist that you trust. Right. Yeah. It's really hard to find a good one. And then, you know, we have ama- amazing healthcare in this country, but you've got to go get a mental health plan and get a referral to that doctor. And so it's like chicken or the egg. I've got to find the doctor first. Mm. And then I can't afford to pay $250 a session. Mm. So then I've got to go back to the GP, you know. So I'm trying to do all of that at the moment with the newborn which is um, not that easy. But I am looking for one because I know desperately that I need it. And I think it's a strange thing to find a grief counsellor before the person has passed. But I also think that it's probably a smart thing to do. How has mental illness changed or strengthened your relationships? Is that something that you needed to discuss with your partner a lot? Yeah. Um, I think... uh, it was never really understood before I met Rich, my husband, and I think that's why I didn't want to get married and I didn't want to have children because I couldn't see me doing those things with someone because I had to be a different version of myself to fit into my relationships and I didn't think anyone would really accept me for all of my quirks. Um, and I was really terrified of passing on any kind of anxiety or depression to a child and also going through the postpartum stage, you know, 
so many people do get depression and I thought, shit, what if that happens to me? You know, I know how to live my life relatively well mentally, mm. but being pregnant and having a baby throws that all out the window. But then I met Rich and he was just made that all go away, not by the things he said, but just who he is and was. And, and then I could just be me. And he'll still tell me when I'm out of control because sometimes I will get out of control with my organisation. <laughs> um, but in a good way, you know, he, he keeps me as sane as I can be. Last year, you decided to publish a series of blog posts about your struggle to fall pregnant. Can you take us back to that time when you thought, I'm going to start making this public, I'm going to write about a really, really hard period of my life and what sparked all of that? Yeah. I mean, I was writing about it personally and I write about a lot of things personally that never go anywhere. Um, So I'd already kind of half written it. And it was just because I needed a way to process it. And we had, you know, given up IVF. We'd stopped. We were like, right, it's just the two of us. So I was like, I'm going to write some of this down because I need to get it out. I was feeling obviously incredibly devastated. And then I actually decided to publish it because of something Mia, my boss, did. Uh, she was giving a, she was practicing her talk. She does a tour. And she there was a quote that said, somewhere there's a person whose wounds are the exact shape of your words. And I was like, wow, that really like punched me in the stomach. And that was at three o'clock in the afternoon and I went home and started publishing it by seven. Um, and I hadn't really finished it and I didn't know if I was ever going to finish it. I hadn't asked Rich if I could and obviously it was incredibly private, but I just couldn't not. And yeah, so I started publishing it and then I freaked out. I'd published half and then I freaked out and I didn't want it anymore and I didn't want it out in the world and I didn't want to be so public and I didn't want to finish it. But I kind of had to, which was like, you can't be a dick. You can't just like leave people hanging. <laughs> You know what? You were our boss at the time as well. And I remember where I was when I saw that you had published it. And I was on a tram and I read all of the blog posts in one go. Mm. One of the things I really loved about it was the blog posts were quite brief, but there was a series. So it Mm. felt like you could go through all the different stages. And I would have read for a long time, but it didn't really feel like I was reading for ages because it was just like I wanted to know the next step and what was happening in your head. And I think that's because I wrote it. It was. I didn't write it that night. You know, I'd yeah. ri- I'd been writing it as I felt it, sort of thing. Um, but it was really hard to write the second half because I didn't want to because mm-hmm. I I knew people were Waiting going for- to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas before it was easier because it was just for me. Can I ask? So can I bring you back just a little bit when you decided to publish those you know blog posts or when you started to write them? You and Rich had made the decision that kids just weren't going to happen. It was just going to be the two of you. How do you come to that decision to to say? Let's just breathe and let go. Like It's incredibly hard. He had made that decision before me but didn't say it because obviously he wanted me to get there first but or get there on my own. But we just had spent tens of thousands of dollars on IVF. We'd had 48 embryos that were duds. You know, I had all these things wrong with me, you know, in inverted commas, and it just wasn't looking like it was going to happen. And, you know, you hear these stories of women that have 9 and 12 and 15 rounds of IVF and not even the financial cost, but just the cost to your happiness. Like I wasn't happy. I hadn't been happy for years and I just wanted to be happy then and now and not, you know, put all my happiness on this one thing that probably won't happen. And so we just said that round was our last round and we went and had a debrief with our um, fertility doctor and she was like, yeah, okay, so your egg quality is a bit shit and you've got this and that and all of these things. And, and so we... It, it was hard emotionally, but intellectually it was obviously the right decision because we were up against it and it just really wasn't going to happen. So we had to just call it, which was really, really hard. 
What's the financial burden of IVF like? Because I th- there's so many ads on radio where you hear mm-hmm. about IVF and it's all very hopeful and positive. And I think such a hidden side of this is the financial yeah. well, cost. says if you can't have a baby, there are options. But it's yes. like, does everybody have those options? They're very expensive options. Yeah. Look, in Australia, we're really lucky. So I went through Jenea. The average round is about 12 grand, but you get roughly five back. But that's for your basic round. So then if you want to do something called ICSI, which we did, um, you know, so when you see like the ads for IVF um, and you see like a needle being injected into mm. that's ICSI. So they'll inject an individual sperm into each individual egg. That's somewhere between five hundred or eight hundred dollars per egg. Wow. Um, and I had twenty one eggs one round. So you're doing ICSI times twenty one eggs. It costs money to freeze it. It costs money to do genetic testing. So there's kind of all these add-ons, which of course has to cost money. This science is incredible. It's incredibly expensive because it's cutting edge. So we're really lucky. You know, my girlfriend in Singapore, I think it was something like forty grand for one round. So we're really, really lucky, I think, here. But still, we just couldn't keep going. We didn't have the money. That's and we didn't, so out of reach. Yeah, and it's so hard because it's your emotional well-being and your, your future that you desperately want. And you can see why people keep going and get into so much debt. But I just didn't want to be childless and completely broke and devastated. Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely part of the reason why we called it was financial the timing of the blog post was quite serendipitous i even remember you saying in the blog posts it's so annoying when people say that if you let go and you just stop (laughs) that maybe that's when you fall pregnant i know and then you did i know but i'm very pragmatic i'm not a hippy dippy energy person don't give me a crystal it's not because we stopped. It's yeah. because I went on a, a drug. Yes. Um, well, this is what I believe. It's because I went on a drug that helps with ovulation. Because when I had my debrief with my fertility doctor, I said, oh, my girlfriend's on this drug, letrozole. And she went, oh, yeah. She goes, you know, she kind of said, she didn't say it, but I could tell she was thinking, eh, it's not going to work. It can't hurt. It's like a $17 script. Is so that I, all it was? Yeah. And it just compared helped. to like twenty thousand yeah. dollars. I know, and you know what? It makes you ovulate more eggs, or ovulate if you don't ovulate at all, and so it just increases your chances. But you know, I had poor egg quality. I had natural killer cells. I had lots of things that more eggs weren't going to help. So we tried it anyway, and then two months on that drug, fell pregnant. How did that feel? I can imagine. We'll get to the anxiety of being pregnant when you've already had miscarriages and had so many failed rounds before. But can you talk us through maybe the guilt in that you had found a whole community of women who Mm. came to you and said, fucking hell, like me too. I know what you're going Mm. through. I went through the same. Being able to accept that this is the end is really, really hard. How did you feel when you then announced your pregnancy to then say, actually... I That's why I didn't want to keep writing it because I was in very early pregnancy and I thought well, this is going to end in miscarriage again and I'll be too hurt to write about it. And then as the pregnancy progressed, I was like, shit, now this is going to end perhaps with a baby and then I feel like such a fraud because the point of the blog, and I really wanted the point to be, was that it's okay not to have a happy ending because there's so many goddamn happy endings and when you're infertile, that is the last thing you want to read or hear. And so then when... I thought, oh, my God, I've already put this out there. And then it's going to be like, oh, but wait, look, I got my baby. And so I didn't want to finish it. I wasn't going to. But Rich really talked me into doing that because, well, people are going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't just ghost everybody. But I did feel – I felt like a fraud and I felt really like I cheated these people because I did want them to feel like it's okay if it doesn't work. Mm. Um that's a lot of pressure for one person to have, particularly when you're dealing with so much, like so many other competing yeah. emotions when you're pregnant. And I think that's the thing because I had so much personal anxiety around the pregnancy. I couldn't really think about that too much because I was too anxious about myself. 
But it was hard. Your pregnancy announcement reminded me a lot of Leandra Medine's pregnancy Do you Have you followed much of her before? The yes. founder of Man Repeller. And I, I remember she had quite a similar story to you and that had struggled to fall pregnant and was very public about that for a very long time and had sort of cultivated this community of women. And then when you both have to announce that, hey – actually I'm pregnant, you have mm. to do it in this incredibly gentle way. Like yours was not particularly showy and neither was hers. Was that mm. a really conscious decision that I need to do this gently? It's so funny you say that because I was her community of women and I remember reading her blog post at Huff Post at my desk and still I felt ripped off because she announced that she was pregnant with the twins and she wrote a beautiful it post. It was a beautiful she's story. she's such a bloody good writer. I just read it and go, God, I wish I could write She's like incredible. You. We should yeah. put that story in the show notes. You need to. And I, but I read it and I was like, no. No, I've been doing this longer. I've been through more than you. This isn't fair. Why have you got your chance? And so then, yes, when it was my turn to go, oh, I'm pregnant, I thought about her and I thought about how I felt. Even though she did it so tastefully, I still felt really ripped off by her. Mm. Um, and so that was going through my mind as well. And you know what? I didn't want to put up a bump photo or anything like that. I just did an update of my blog to say I'm pregnant. And we were 20 weeks at that stage because that's pretty much as safe as you're kind of going to get. Um, was it tactical to – not tactical, I guess. That might be the wrong word. But was that a conscious decision to wait until you were 20 weeks because yeah. you didn't want to risk it? Yeah, because, you know, you can tell a lot at the 12-week scan and we had the Harmony test. We had every genetic test you could bloody have. Um, but the 20-week scan is a really great scan where, you know, you're there for about an hour and a half and they're checking, you know, the valves of the heart and every kind of thing. And you can kind of from there go, okay. It's a baby. It's a baby. And, you know, what could happen from here is pretty much stillbirth, but which, of course, I was terrified of. But but I felt relief. That was the first time I felt some relief in the pregnancy and I also couldn't hide it by then. Obviously work knew and people that saw me publicly knew mm. couldn't carry my handbag in front of my belly any longer. So it was time. But that, yeah, was still also really, really scary. Mm. Were you able to enjoy the pregnancy at all? Was there, by the end of it, by like, say, week 30, did the anxiety yeah, subside? it really did. So I did, my obstetrician um, gave me a referral to a therapist who specialized in people who had pregnancy loss and she was really great she gave me lots of coping method coping methods is that the right word yeah, i've got baby brain. mechanisms <laughs> that's what i'm looking for and then of course as he started moving it helped because they move although then the anxiety when they don't move for an hour and you drink 10 liters of orange juice and the poor kid's like off his head um the anxiety just changes but it definitely lessened and i could enjoy it yeah and i knew i wouldn't get that again and so i really tried to live in the moment and go wow this is happening to me. One thing you touched on earlier in the chat that we had always intended to get to is you've given birth to Alexander and you touched on just before the fact that as you've given birth, you've also come to terms with the fact that you are losing your dad. And one of the things that you wrote on Instagram, I hope you don't mind us reading you back to you, is you said, since having Alexander, I've consciously tried to only live the day it actually is. And that's the thing about having a tiny titch. The need for immediate attention means you live Tuesday on Tuesday and Friday on Friday and can't really get too much further than that. Maybe it's because it's too painful to consider the future now because the first year with my son might be the last with my darling dad and maybe that's why he was sent to us in the first place. It was really beautifully put though because, I mean, I've been wondering what being a mum has taught you about life and having those two competing forces at exactly the same time. Yeah, it's really shit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I do feel really ripped off, but there was a time where I just wished that my dad would meet my child. And that was my only wish. And now he, I got that and he got that. And you can't wish, you know, people that you love are going to die. Old people die. Um, and I'm lucky that my father got to old age. He's 76 or something. He's not really old, but he also has smoked two packs a day for as long as I've known him. And he's dying of cancer. So um, 
it's hard because there's never a good time to go, okay, it's good for you to die now. I'm happy with that. And, you know, he said to me the other night, I just really want to see Alexander walk. And I thought, well, okay. And, you know, his oncologist has referred him to a palliative care doctor. So, you know, we all know what's going on. Um, But I just, yeah, I just want Alexander to know my dad. And so I'm trying to get as many videos as I can and videos of my dad reading books so that he can watch them when he can understand them. But... I can't imagine what it would be like to be my dad and to know that you're dying and to see your child with their child and it would be harder for him, I think, in a way because he just... It's like you're grieving your own life before you've lost it. Yeah, you're just... And I I think all the time, is it better that we know or would you just prefer a sudden death? Um, Because you want to make all these memories and you want to say goodbye, but there'll never be enough memories and you'll always want more time. So it's hard to know... um, it's you know it's just death it's messy and hard and awful to talk about and easier to not talk about but when it's there every day I think it's better to try and face it it's what you said before you said like you know I like I wished for him to meet Alexander and you can't always wish for more but you kind of can like you want more yeah you can and that's the thing you know I've still got crazy hormones and I want 7,000 babies and I said to Rich <laughs> okay quick I'm really old let's try again and he's like okay we just wanted one and it's funny because you do get what you wish for, but then as soon as you've got it, you want the next thing. But I'm nice. trying to really just go, okay, this is exactly what I wanted. Well, it opens another door, doesn't it? And you're like, oh, wait, there's a whole lot of stuff yeah, behind here that I didn't realise. But I think there's something in realising that you've got what you wanted. Because mm. otherwise we're just always jumping to the next thing and I'm really bad at that. I do that, you know, you get a promotion, you get a pay rise, you get whatever, and you're like, okay, cool, what's next? But sometimes you just have to stop and go, okay, I worked really hard for this and I'm just going to enjoy it without wondering what's the next step. Have the last... 10, 11 months change your perspective on life and the way you live your life? That's a really good question. Not in pregnancy, no. And I, and I, because I think I didn't slow down because if I slowed down, I could think. So I kept busy and I kept doing everything because I didn't want to let the anxiety in. And even now I'm finding it really hard on maternity leave to just be. You know, when he's awake and stuff, it's great. We're feeding and reading and whatever. But otherwise when he's sleeping, I'm just in an apartment and I'm just a mum. Um, and I don't like that. I don't like maternity leave. It's really hard because you are with your thoughts. Um, and, of course, I've got so much going on in my life right now. I don't want to be alone with my thoughts as much as I know I do. I have a lot to process. But, no, I don't think it's changed me. I just think it's widened me. I, it's hard mm. to explain. I just think it's added an extra element. Mm. Given you have been had a really high-profile and very successful career, you have and your baby and you're also dealing with grief. I'm interested in what your idea of success looks like now that you're on mat leave and can almost kind of pull back and and look at it all from, you know, maybe a more bird's eye view. Yeah. That's so interesting because being on maternity leave, I have zero sense of accomplishment. Um, Even though I know I'm keeping a small human alive every day and that's very important and he's fed and his nappies have changed and all of those things. But what success was to me before is very different now. And I think I'm trying to find my new success because I don't feel like I'm succeeding. Like, yeah, keeping someone alive is important, but it doesn't really feel like, yes, when I put him down at night, he's alive. Great reads on this. (laughs) And so I think... I guess success at the end of the day is just being happy and I know that's super cheesy and that I'm still working on too because I'm not happy all the time and happy is definitely not my default. I don't wake up happy. My husband does. It's so annoying. He's <laughs> always happy no matter what's going on. He's like, it's no problem. We'll fix it. And that's definitely not me. So I think I'm working on success to me being happy but that's certainly a process for someone who's got a lot of 
you know, negative self-talk or, or, you know, tends to worry a lot. Mm. Um, So I want success for me to be happy, but it's a process. I'm not quite there. Even just mentally calm. I reckon that's my one, just to be at peace with myself. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And just to not find things to worry about because when things are good, I'll find you something to worry about. Don't you worry. (laughs) I said we're going to a friend's wedding in March overseas and already I'm so worried. And so I'm saying to Rich, and he's got to have this vaccine, and I'm worried. And he's like, "Oh, I trust you to worry about something nine months ago. <laughs> like, I've got to find something to worry about. About something happy to a wedding, <laughs> right? Yeah. So no. I just want to be happy. That's success to me. And what's next for you? I mean, I know Zara, and I would love to see you write a book, as does every other person in your mm. orbit. Lots of people suggest that they would love to see a Lee Campbell book. So I was when I wrote Treading More to my blog blog series, I was approached by a publisher to write to, to turn that into a book. Um, and I just found out I was pregnant when I got mm. the email, and I. I was like, ah, can I get back to you? And after 12 weeks, I went and met with them and I said, look, spoiler alert, I'm pregnant. I ruined the ending. And they said, we still want the book. And I thought, I don't know. So then I pitched them a beauty book, which they want Mm. um, and are very happy for me to start either. So I've just got to start. Um, but I'm do. super I mean, you gave birth six weeks ago. You don't need to start right now. I don't have Wi-Fi at home yet. (laughs) Um, I do... I do want to write a book, but I'm extremely terrified. Like some, publishing something digitally is fine because it's gone the next day. It's like the newspaper. A book is so scary. What if people don't like it? What if people don't buy it? The reviews. The reviews. The reviews. The reviews. What if there's a mistake? You can't just jump in and fix it. The t- oh, my God. It is my worst nightmare right? to publish a book and have a typo in it yeah. somewhere. And I just don't know if it's super egotistical to think someone wants to read something that I write. But also, I think I'm going to have to do it because I feel like... If I we don't, want to I'll be disappointed. But do you want a beauty book or do you want a fertility book? Uh, probably. Well, I to guess it would just mean me just personally. <laughs> probably both. But I would love a beauty book yeah. personally. I think beauty is a good way to dip my toe, yeah. and then maybe. All right, I'll do it. Okay, <laughs> in a Thank few weeks. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for being so generous with your stories and your, I don't know, emotions too, I guess. Yeah, there I were think. some tears. You got them. No, <laughs> Amazing. Them. No, it's not even that. But I think there are so many people just hearing your story come out from start to end is, I don't know, really lovely to hear. And baby Xander is very cute sitting on your lap. So thank you so much for your time. And thank also to see you. a different side to you, I think, Yeah, as well. it's so no, mum life, vomit and all. <laughs> no, it's really great. I'm really proud of you guys. You're absolutely killing it and I love chatting. Thanks, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless. If you loved listening to Lee's story as much as we loved having her on, you can find her on Instagram at Lee A. Campbell. As always, you can find us at Shameless Podcast. We will see you guys on Monday. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
there is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.